Chapter Ten of An Exchange of Souls by Barry Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. The coroner's jury returned a verdict of accidental death, and there was little or no suggestion during the inquest that any other verdict was possible. Mr. Vulsame was quite at his best. He had a frock coat and his professional manner. He was omniscient, but he was also sympathetic. He spoke of Myas as a singularly gifted man who had at one time come to him for advice. Myas, so he told us, was interested in medical psychology and made many experiments upon himself. He, Valsame, had given him a warning on this point on a previous occasion. In fact, Valsame was very impressive and magnificent. Possibly with a view to earning his money, he mentioned that Myas was very happily engaged, and that Miss Lade's devotion to him was a real and very beautiful thing. The echo of my own words made me squirm. I had not seen Miss Lade before the inquest. She was dressed entirely in black, of course, and kept her veil down. She spoke in a low voice, and seemed perfectly self-possessed. There was even a vague suggestion of dominance and decision about her, which I had not noticed before. She was not required to say much. If Valsame's story of the two voices in the laboratory was a true story, and certainly I believed it, then Miss Lade lied, and she lied simply, firmly, and well. My own evidence was merely to the effect that Myas had no financial trouble, and no other cause, so far as I knew, for taking his life. I confirmed Valsame's opinion of the happiness of his engagement, and I mentioned that, to my knowledge, Myas had been anticipating a considerable success in his line of scientific research. The coroner had a few wise words to say on the distinction between eccentricity and insanity. The jury might reasonably come to the conclusion that Myas was slightly eccentric, but they could not go further than that. Many medical men, he reminded them, had tried experiments upon themselves. Mr. Vulsame, who had given his evidence admirably, had told them that he himself had found a record of similar experiments in Myas's handwriting, and had given him a very proper and judicious warning against them. Altogether, it was a great day for Valsame. As we left the court, I handed him an envelope, and he thanked me. "'Pulled it off all right, eh?' "'I think you gave your evidence admirably, Mr. Valsame.' He tapped the breast pocket in which he had placed the envelope. "'Not a word about this to anybody, you know.' "'Much better not,' I agreed. It could be so easily misunderstood. The envelope contained three hundred pounds in Bank of England notes. I had not thought it advisable to pay by check. I had even taken the trouble to get the notes from four different sources. In fact, I was not prepared to trust Valsame quite so far as I could throw him. In accordance with the directions contained in his will, the body of Daniel Myas was cremated and no religious service was held over it, and I was the only person present. Mr. Valsame had expressed an intention of being there, 
but was prevented by a professional engagement. I think it was Miss Lade who was responsible for the absence of herself and her mother. Old Mrs. Lade spoke to me about it and seemed to regret it. She had the deep interest in funerals which is characteristic of her class. "'But we mothers have to do what we're told nowadays,' she said. She also expressed a hope that friends in Knox Street would not think the funeral arrangements shabby. She admitted that Myas's directions for simplicity and his prohibition of floral tributes had to be observed. That year, for the first time in my life, I spent August and September in town. I was engaged in clearing up all the business of Myas's estate. Fortunately, it proved to be a very simple matter. Myas had always been in the habit of consulting a solicitor as to his investments, and very few of them had to be changed. I called at Knox Street on the day after the funeral, but Miss Lade was not to be seen. I did see her once in the following week, for a few moments only, at her solicitor's office, on matters of business connected with the estate, and I noticed then that her manner to me had changed completely. She said as little as possible, and she got away as soon as possible. She told me nothing as to her future plans. She asked for no advice. I noticed further that she avoided meeting my eye directly. I met her again by chance, and rather curiously. I had received a letter from old Wellsford. I was meaning to run down to my cottage for a weekend, and there were certain things which Wellsford desired me to bring with me. He wanted a rain-gauge of a particular kind, and his letter reminded me that I had promised him his blessed rain-gauge. He also described the garden thermometer as being now past work, and suggested that it should be replaced. That was how I came to visit the shop of Denville and Moore, the instrument makers in Holborn. In the shop was Alice Lade, talking freely and even urgently to a managerial and dignified person on the other side of the counter. She had her back to me and did not see me. As I waited for an assistant at the other counter, I could hear what was said. People do not tell their secrets in the shops of the scientific instrument makers, and I felt no scruples about it. "'You must have got Dr. Myas's original specifications,' said Miss Lade. "'We have, madam,' said the man. "'We always keep everything of that kind.' Our difficulty is that while this piece of apparatus was being constructed, Dr. Myas modified those specifications, and in some cases departed from them altogether. It was a very delicate piece of work indeed, and very complicated. We could construct the apparatus again according to the original specification, but we feel sure it would not give you satisfaction. He supervised every detail of the construction himself. "'That's all right,' said Miss Lade. "'I can understand that. Then let me see the workman to whom he gave his verbal instructions. Only an intelligent man could be employed for work of that kind, and he would be certain to remember any instance in which the specification was not followed.' "'Probably he would.' 
but there we are brought face to face with another difficulty. Dr. Myas's orders were given to our foreman. He was a very able and well-educated man, but unfortunately he was intemperate, and for that reason we had to get rid of him. We cannot say now where he is. At this moment my assistant produced rain gauges, and my attention was for the moment diverted. But as he was packing up my purchases, I again heard Miss Lade, "'That's what you must do, then. You must advertise for this man. At any cost I must have this apparatus reconstructed.' And then she turned and saw me. She seemed startled and embarrassed, but what struck me most was that she looked very ill. She shook hands with me in a perfunctory sort of way, murmured a silly word or two about the weather, said good morning, and turned to go. But almost immediately she turned back again. Her eyes beckoned me, and I followed her out to the cab, which was waiting for her. "'Get in, please,' she said. As she spoke, I looked at her and saw that her face was contorted with pain. She seemed suddenly to have grown many years older. I followed her into the cab. The driver apparently already had his directions. Alice Lade sat with her elbows on her knees and her hands covering her face. Then suddenly she touched my arm. "'Can you get me some brandy?' she said. I have kind of a neuralgia that gives me such intense pain that I'm afraid of fainting. By the direction of my doctor I always carry with me a tiny flask of brandy, though for the last two years I am thankful to say I have never wanted it. It was useful in this emergency. She drank eagerly. Her color returned slightly and her face became more tranquil. Thank you very much she said. If you will stop the cab, I won't keep you any longer. I have to go on to some chemists in the city that are doing some work for me. I was angry, of course, but I trust that I only appeared firm. You are not fit to go on to the city or to do any further business this morning, Miss Lade. If you insist upon it, I shall certainly come with you. If you will promise me to go straight home, I will leave you. You will probably think me very officious and interfering, but you must remember that I promised to look after you. I don't think you officious or interfering. I am really grateful to you. It is only that just at present I cannot bear to have anyone at all with me. I must be alone. But I will do as you say and will go home at once. I stopped the cab and got out without shaking hands. As I stood with the door open, I said, "'To Durnford Place or Knox Street?' "'To Durnford Place, please. Thank you again. One day, perhaps—' She did not finish her sentence, and once more covered her face with her hands. I waited a second or two, and then closed the door and gave the driver his order. I had a good deal to think of as I sat alone after lunch that day. Try how I would to prevent it, Valsame's suspicions of Alice Lade would come back to my mind. I told myself that these suspicions were unworthy of me. 
Miss Lade had seemed somewhat ungrateful. She had snubbed me and discarded me for no reason of which I was aware. Neither of those things should have made me suspicious, and I have always considered it rather low class to be wounded and resentful. But it was in vain that I tried to bully myself into a better frame of mind. The horrible and astounding fact was this. If Miss Lade had really been responsible for the death of Daniel Myas, I should have expected her to behave very much as she had behaved. She looked to me like a woman tortured with remorse and sleepless nights. End of chapter 10